0: Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Freshfields TQ podcast. My name is Sarah Solem. Today, we'll be looking at what happens to companies as they reach the end of their growth journey and founders look to cash out. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by my fellow partners, Mark Austin and Stefan Puckinger. Mark, why don't we start with you? What should founders be thinking about and when, importantly, should founders start to think about their exit options? And what might they be doing on the legal side?
1: Thanks, Sarah. Um, Yeah, an interesting question. Um, I mean, I I guess the easy answer to that question, the obvious answer to that question is as soon as possible in terms of when they should be thinking about it. Clearly, though, you know, founders in fast growing companies are moving fast and breaking things, uh, have to, and it's not always possible. But there are a number of things that founders should start thinking about as soon as they can. In terms of from a legal perspective, I would say the three top three things I would have on my list, if an exit is reasonably imminent, is thinking firstly about documents and document collation. What what does the universe of paper within the business look like? Is it readily collatable? Is it readily assembled into a data room? Are there any obvious gaps, uh, etc.? That's one area that is key because when it comes to an exit of any nature, in fact, you're going to need to be able to evidence where the company has come from, and people are going to need to be able to do diligence on the company. And that still takes, is largely in paper form, even if it's through a virtual data room. Uh, The other is, second is systems and controls. I mean, we all work a lot with fast-growing tech companies, and um, they don't always have all the systems and controls in place, as you would expect, and nor should they, that are relevant for a listed company. Um, if they're going that route. Less relevant if they're going a sale route, which we can talk about in a bit. But systems and controls around reporting information through the business, knowing who's responsible for for those information flows. Sometimes when you're actually having to put those in place prior to an exit, it can have an impact on the culture, which is a key point to think about. And then the third thing I would say is just around governance, whether that's board uh, or more widely, to be honest with you, um, through through an ex But I'm sure you will agree that one of the particularly if, you're, if a founder's considering an IPO, one of the longest lead time work streams is actually putting together a board. Um, and I've seen so many IPOs get delayed because it gets considered too late um, and either the people that get approached uh, aren't the right people or they haven't got time uh, or they haven't got time to really get another bonnet of the c- relevant company and you have to go back to the drawing board again. And it's not just about you know, finding people to fill a board, it's about finding the right people to fill a board. And that chemistry is critical and it takes a long time. So those would be my top three, Sarah.
0: I 100% agree with it. And on that last point, you made the key point, which is finding the right people. But in addition to finding the right people, unless a company is willing to have a very large board, there are also certain requirements to be fulfilled um, in terms of people being of a certain background to serve on an audit committee, for example, as well as the company wanting to put their best foot forward from the standpoint of diversity, I can't underemphasize how much time it can take to put all that together. So, starting a year out is definitely not too early. Starting before that could even be more beneficial in that the company gets the benefit of those people's expertise, which is, is the point after all. What about you, Stefan?
2: Maybe to add on this one, I think what's also key is to align the organizational setup with the investors you're targeting. It makes a whole lot of difference if you plan or think about a U.S. listing with a European governance system in place. So aligning this, I think, is very critical because uh, we all know governance systems uh, and corporate laws differ very much. And this mismatch is very important to potentially tap and address at the beginning. There is obviously legal frameworks which are more akin to the U.S. system and that would then facilitate the process. So I think having a clear understanding, you know, where and which investor base to address from my perspective would be an additional point to consider, which is highly relevant.
0: One last thing I might add is if if your company has any sort of outstanding diligence issue, and I'll give an example in a second... That impacts value. That may be something that needs to be taken care of now. For example, if your company is in a long-standing dispute over a patent with a competitor, you probably don't want to go out with an IPO on that. Um, assuming you could settle it or somehow wrap that up, um, just so that's not one thing that's um, impacting the company's value.
1: Sarah, one one other one other more story I can just say on that. I totally agree with you. Is there was an IPO I was doing a few years ago where. We have this concept in the UK of a diligence report being done by the accountants, which is called the long-form report. Uh, and um, they produced that report and it got circulated all and sundry and everyone read it over, I think it was over the Easter weekend, actually. And it turned out that the the company, which is a telco company, uh, actually um, its systems controls were full uh, and it had been extrapolating its user numbers for the last six months. And that came to light through the diligence report, which obviously then delayed the IPO. So I totally agree, sorting out diligence issues and... Uh, and the like is critically important early.
2: And which to add on this one uh, is something which is developing quite fast. You know, the we're all conscious of the ESG uh, um, sustainability topic. Yeah, and to which extent this is value creating and value enhancing, and what to look at is something to pay attention uh, because this is clearly at the forefront and uh, very much of the interest of investors. So by diligence, it's not a tick-the-box exercise, but uh, something which is really relevant also from a value creation and value uh, point of view for, for companies.
0: I think that's an interesting point and maybe a good segue to talk about here. One trend that is is definitely gaining some momentum here in the United States is for companies that are mission-focused and otherwise focused on uh, sustainability, social issues, environmental issues, uh, we are seeing more and more companies think about converting to a corporate form called a public benefit corporation, which is a simple for-profit type of corporation, just like almost any other Delaware co- company, but with a few extra bells and whistles. And so if that's an area that a company is thinking about uh, as being value enhancing, going down the route of becoming a public benefit corporation is one step that can be taken, along with everything else that a company might do to ready itself for being a public company. for And by that, I mean things like adopting anti-takeover protections and, and the like.
1: Yeah, it's been a live topic for a while in the UK now, actually. Um, anti-takeover protections and the whole question of dual-class share structures, which obviously have been fairly common in the States for some time, um, particularly amongst uh, tech companies. Uh, so in the UK, um, there was a review earlier this year which we um, helped with which ended up recommending that dual-class share structures should be allowed on the main listing segment in London. That got taken forward by the regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, and they've just closed the consultation on that. But the expectation is that they will allow dual-class share structures on the main listing segment, but with certain conditions around them. So the voting rights will be limited to um, blocking a takeover uh, and also keeping the relevant founder on the board. And they'll have a maximum duration of five years. Um, so uh, you can actually already list in London with a dual class share structure. We advised Deliveroo, and they listed in London earlier this uh, last year. Getting mixed up In my years, earlier this year, <laughs> with um, with a, a dual class share structure for Will Shoe, which actually was much with the same the same as the one in the states. So actually, you could vote on everything. It just meant you couldn't li- list on the premium listing segment. It's a live topic actually in London because Matt Moulding, who's the founder and CEO of a company called the Huck Group, which is a very large online business, um, which listed earlier this year as well. Uh, and who has a special share. He doesn't have a dual-class share structure, he has a special share uh, whereby he can block a takeover. Um, uh, He has said as a result of his share price falling and various other factors that he is going to relinquish that special share. So it's going to be interesting to see how that, if at all, impacts on the sort of regulator discussion uh, around dual-class share structures in London in the coming weeks and months. I hope it doesn't distract it because I think they are a valuable mechanism and something that founders should have for a period while the company's growing fast um, and while they execute their vision on the public markets, but we'll see.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, dual class share structures, as you said, are very, very common in our market. Um, The question is always, should there be a sunset in place? And when we see a sunset, most commonly it's seven years or less, meaning the whole dual class structure goes away at, at year seven. And the reason for that is, there's a, a group out there that lobbies very hard against these sorts of structures, but if the sunset is seven years or shorter, then they're uh, much happier with them. But we haven't seen any real investor pushback um, on companies that go out with dual class share structures, especially in for companies that are what I call FOMO stocks, meaning all the investors are afraid of missing out. So it's not a trend that's going away here.
2: It's less of a trend in Europe for corporate governance reasons, but uh, I think what's more becoming increasingly relevant, and Mark alluded to this, is the segmentation and the eligibility for certain indices. And this is driven very much by underlying passive investments like ETFs. So we see a strong uh, sort of differentiation and uh, a a strong focus on eligibility for certain market segments, because that's uh, obviously a question of liquidity and uh, investor base being able and being invested in in these type of market segments. And that is also uh, maybe one of the reasons why companies tap public markets at a later point in time, because, you know, in the maturity of a company exiting at a later point in time suggests that there's increased value and with a higher valuation eligibility for those type of market segments uh, increases. So uh, that's something we frequently see and which is a lot of in the underlying uh, thinking and uh, thought process.
0: One of the things we're seeing here is more and more companies are going public with multiple founders still involved in management and on the board. And that having more than one founder with a very large stake where one of them is a CEO and one isn't can lead to some interesting possible fact patterns down the road. Uh so we're seeing more founders negotiate agreements among themselves as to how they will uh manage themselves going forward. In certain cases, agreeing to vote together or agreeing to agreeing on um if there's three of them, for example, voting with the how two of the three of them vote. Um that's definitely an evolving area and limited to those companies with multiple founders. Maybe uh we can just switch gears a little bit and talk about culture and how founders I should think about managing their employees who might be very engaged in social media and what impact that could have as a company is growing up and getting itself ready, either for a sale or for uh, the public markets. Um, do you run into those sorts of issues, Stefan? Uh,
2: that is a huge issue, to be honest, because in a private world, you know, social media and the way how to communicate in a very transparent and open manner uh, has become the new normal, let's put it that way. Everyone's on social media and people are fairly open and frank about, you know, valuation strategies, performance and the likes. And clearly that switches, you know, once technically speaking, the listing application has been submitted because that's the trigger element in the European context on the basis of which uh, a different regime applies. And then the market abuse rules come into play and, you know, they set a, a new a way how to communicate, you know, from an insider's point of view, from a market abuse point of view. And that is a cultural shift within an organization uh, so that people are aligned and are coordinated in how to communicate and how to facilitate a corporate communication policy in line with this new legal framework. So that is very, very topical and sometimes underestimated what it means culturally. Uh, in terms of how people can communicate internally, but also externally. And this is clearly a bit of a challenge for us as lawyers, being involved in these processes and to make people aware of this and to train, and educate, and guide them properly.
0: Yeah, it's a heavy lift um, helping companies move from that uh, very open style to what's necessary for being public in the States. Two sets of rules to think about. One is what we lawyers call gun jumping rules. The SEC is very strict about any communications leading up to an IPO being seen as hyping the stock. And so it's important that um, a company really lock down its communications and that pretty much everything, once an IPO org meeting has happened, pretty much everything is to be run through both the company's council and the underwriters council. And either allowed if we can fit it in a box uh, or not allowed if we can't. And so in a strange way, it's, it's better for companies in the States to establish a very consistent drumbeat of communication and the types of communications it's going to want to make leading up to an IPO to have established that pattern in advance. So that we can be clear that as those communications continue, that they're not for the purpose of hyping the stock or, you know, getting investor interest in the offering, but rather to allow the company to continue what it's doing, um, which is um, typically important for the company's invest, uh, in, not investors, customers um, or other third party constituents. Do you have those sorts of issues, Mark?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Very common, Um, recognize everything you're saying. Um, And it is a big cultural issue. I agree with the consistency point. We have large large debates around what people want to report going forward as well. People sometimes forget that the KPIs you use in IPO are the ones you're going to have to report going forward. Um, So it needs a lot of careful analysis about actually what a company wants to report on going forward, which metrics. Um, uh, And I totally agree on on the cultural side. In my experience, most companies flash around their key metrics to the business internally almost every day. Um, And so you need to do an exercise in actually working out, because it's not not always as bad as you think, actually, when you get under the bonnet of the question, because you sometimes find that, yes, there might be one KPI, one aspect of a KPI that that is problematic in one area of the world, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have to shut the whole thing down. You might be able to still have some aspects of that metric going around certain parts of the business, for example, or you restrict it to something like, we've done this a few times, a global leadership team. So the key people at the top of the business still get all the information, and people further down the business get a slightly reduced package but but not completely cut off, but it is a big cultural issue, and founders care about it very much, of course. The other thing that we're doing in London at the moment is looking about how reforming the rules around forward looking information and how you provide that at iPO uh, because uh, and I confess to being behind this idea um I've thought for a long time that it's crazy that you come to market in the in Europe at least with three years of backward looking financials. Um, and a page or half a page of narrative current trading and prospects. And that's the extent of your forward-looking information. When we all know that through private funding rounds, what's the first thing investors want to see? The model. Uh, And yet you get to the biggest event in your corporate history, and you can't give it to them. Uh, And you do the song and dance in the the UK, at least, through the connected analyst research of dropping forward financial guidance through it, like breadcrumbs, so that a sensible investor can follow the trail, Uh, and then putting enough of those in the offering document that other investors are in the same position. But it's a crazy system. But you've got to amend the liability regime for directors, which is what's being consulted on in the UK right now. And I very much hope it happens.
0: We have a similar song and dance here, of course, for a, for a traditional IPO, that is, where the IPO company never actually gives out its forecast or model to the mm-hmm. investing public, although research analysts have it and then create their own models from it. That's for a traditional IPO. But for a company that goes public through a direct listing or SPAC, it's very different. And that's one of the reasons why Those two other ways of going public can be seen as having an advantage in that area. Companies that direct list, for example, do a typical public company analyst day prior to their offering. Uh, So everyone is on the same playing field. And um, as has been well-publicized, companies that are going through DSPAC transactions going public that way also give out a fair amount of forward-looking information, probably more than what you would see in in a direct listing.
2: I mean, the European perspective has been added to this already. And Mark rightly put a question mark around this. I will say, though, that I think people increasingly realize that, you know, the regulatory regime in the U.S. for, for these back transactions, you know, has been one of the drivers. And people pay attention to this very much from a European perspective, how this is different and what the impact of this is. Yeah? So I think this is at least on the agenda you know what the legal framework is and how that unfolds and what people, what investors are looking for and what the legal framework is associated with this. So this is clearly something that is of interest and will, will remain a very interesting topic.
0: Thank you, Stefan. Thank you, Mark. I'm sure we could all go on for hours talking about this, one of our favorite topics. Thank you all for listening. We will see you next time.